When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Even the law of attraction, you know, the, I was taught the law of attraction, you know, I was 23, 24 years old. Um, also at a real estate conference, they're talking about this law of attraction thing that there's this energy, everything's made up of energy. I am energy, you are energy, and my thoughts, you know, create this resonance between what I attract and what I don't. I'm like, oh good, I like that shit. You were talking about how you wrote down these beliefs and you were reading them over and you were doing what you're told and you're running your finger across it, you're really allowing yourself to feel it, imagine it, and your brain was screaming something at you. My brain was screaming, that's bullshit, <laughs> that's not true. You're not successful. You're not earning that amount of money. You're not smart. You're not this. But I was also taught at the same time that when that happens, first and foremost, that's normal. That's the old self and the old patterns trying to fight for their life. And he said, with repetition and emotion and consistency, initially it's hard and you have to use conscious effort to create the new beliefs. He says, but over 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 180 days, that new pattern that you're focusing on and paying attention to, your brain basically says, well, I guess you really don't need those old patterns. You keep activating these new ones. Let's just make these ones work and let's make these real. Yeah. But I want to understand what happened and, and with the, even the law of attraction, you know, the, I was taught the law of attraction, you know, I was 23, 24 years old. Um, also at a real estate conference, they were talking about this law of attraction thing, that there's this energy, everything's made up of energy. I am energy, you are energy. And my thoughts, you know, create this resonance between what I attract and what I don't. I'm like, oh good, I like that shit. You know, like I, I want to attract more of the good stuff, right? Um, and so I, I, I bought in, like I bought into stuff that just made sense to me, but then I was a voracious student. I wanted to understand how. Like, explain to me how it works. Like, if somebody tells me visualize, I go, why? Like, how does it work? Like, if you ask me to visualize, like, why does it work? Like, why should I invest my time on that versus something else? If you're asking me to um, use affirmations, like, how specifically, why, how does it work? If you're asking me to emotionalize, well, what's happening in me that tell me I need to create these false senses of feelings? Uh, I want to know why it works. 
And why does it work, especially emotionalizing? I think that's something that people hear a lot. I talk a lot about yeah. embodying something, really feeling it. Yeah. But why does it work? Great, great question. It has to do with circuits in the brain and neurochemicals that are released. And so when we feel something, chances are that we're gonna release dopamine in the brain, the feel-good uh, neurochemical that activates the reward center of the brain. And chances are if we feel that and we have this positive emotion around it and that neurochemistry is flooding our brain and our body with feel-good chemicals, we're actually activating the motivational center of the brain. And so when we visualize, when we set a goal, when we take an action step, when we emotionalize, when we read our goals, the initial flood of neurochemicals, dopamine, serotonin, feel-good chemicals, and then if we share it with a friend, oxytocin, those three neurochemicals, those are the neurochemicals of goal achievement. But then there's the other side of it, the other circuits of fear, of stress, where norepinephrine, cortisol, or epinephrine, the stress hormones can be released as well. And so I'm fascinated and I wanna teach people the stuff that we've learned about beliefs, self-esteem, self-worth, fears, um, and the stuff that really holds people back. Because all the how-to, how to get healthy and stay healthy, we know. How do I build a business and sustain it? We know. How do I get into a relationship and make it successful? We know. We, we know most of the how-to for anything that anybody wants to do in this time frame that we live in. So the how-to is the easiest part of the equation. So the harder part of the equation is why am I not doing the things that I know I should be doing? And why am I not doing the things that I could find out easily how to do? Let's talk about that. So uh, in your real estate company, yeah. you said I'm giving everyone the same training, they're reading all of the oh, same yeah. books, and yet, they're not getting the same results. And it wasn't like, oh, well, the smart people are doing better than the dumb people. You yeah. said sometimes it was people that you were like, God, in real life, this guy's not that bright, but he's crushing, crushing it. it. So what ended up being the difference between the people who didn't do anything yeah. with the information and those that did? So in, this is going back sometimes, so I think in 1992, we were stuck, um, but I knew there was more possibility. There was, there was room for growth. And I wanted to figure out if the stuff that I did in the 80s when I was a kid, you know, that broke free, would it work with some of my agents? And so we took 75 agents, randomly agents said, hey, do you want to get into a six month program to like retrain your brain, your subconscious brain around your beliefs about what is possible for you to achieve, around your habits of what you have to do in order to achieve that. Um, and we focused on retraining their subconscious mind. And so for six months, they had to go through a process of listening to certain audio tapes, reading, reading certain materials every day, and following the process of training their brain, specifically their subconscious brain, which controls 95 to 98% of all of our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors today. And within six months, that group increased sales by $100 million. Jesus. $100 million. And I said, holy shit, right? This is working. Uh, and so we started to teach some of what we teach now in Neurogym. Actually, now we have the technologies, we have the systems that are far better than what we did back in the 90s. And we went from 1.2 billion to 4.5 billion a year. And it wasn't because we taught them any more skills to be real estate agents. Mm. We taught them how to change the way they thought about themselves. We taught them how to change their habits. Wow. Our agents who made $750,000 or more were in front of a client 75% of the time. 
And we asked all the agents that weren't in front of more clients, like, why are you doing that? Like, why aren't you in front of people that are going to help you earn more income? Oh, well, we're busy doing this and doing this and doing this. And they had stories and excuses and reasons why. And so part of the work that I love to do now is, is really help people understand what is your story? Like, what's the story you're telling yourself? Because we all have a story. We have a money story, a relationship story, a health story. We have a story for everything. And then that story keeps recreating our lives over and over and over again. And we have beliefs that support the story. We have habits that support the story. We have people that support the story. We have systems that support our story. And so my question that I always ask people, who would you be with a different story? Talk to me about set points. That was something really interesting yeah. in what you talk about around the stories and things that we carry that I found really interesting. Sure. So Maxwell Maltz wrote a great book many, many years ago in the probably the 70s uh, called Psycho-Cybernetics, yes. right? And Maxwell Maltz was a, a surgeon who performed surgery on people. And what he noticed is even after plastic surgery that he performed on people, some people didn't see any change in their faces. And it was visible to everybody else, but not to them. Because they had a map of what they thought they looked like? Yes. Okay. So we all have a map of reality. We have a map of what we think we look like. Uh, and any deviation on the physical level to that map, to that visual uh, representation we have in our brains that doesn't match the map, your brain deletes or distorts it. So when we were working with real estate agents, or, or when I worked with business owners, in addition to upgrading knowledge and skills, if you think about how, uh, let's say, income, we have set points for how much income we earn. So whether it's 10000 a year or twenty or 50 or 100 or a million, it doesn't matter. We, we get this set point and then we behave the way we need to behave and we feel what we need to feel to earn that income. And over a period of time, it becomes part of the brain's default mode network. So we develop set points for everything. And so if the set points in the brain, and there's a psycho-cybernetic mechanism in the brain, a control and response mechanism in the brain, and it's our brain, why not learn how to reset the set point? And so now we're looking at what technologies are available to help, help reset that, uh, what uh, evidence-based methods are there to set that or to reset that. And so when we take, let's say, visualization, right, and you start to see yourself, even if the picture is not clear in your mind, of achieving the next level of your success, whether it's releasing weight and keeping it off, getting into a relationship that you love and are happy, and whether it's to make two or three or five times more money and live a certain type of lifestyle that allows you to do the things that freedom with having money allows you to do. If you start in your mind first and you impress that through conscious efforts into the subconscious mind, it then causes thoughts and emotions and behaviors. So I like to work from the outside in and from the inside out. So use both. Mm. I, I want every advantage. It's interesting. So I've heard you now a few times and, and the first few times it didn't really make my radar, but you always say release weight. You never yes. say lose weight. Yeah. What do you do when you lose something? Look for it. Yeah. I don't want to look for weight that I've lost. <laughs> I want to release it. I like to use language patterns as well that are going to empower me versus disempower me. Uh, Self-talk is so critical. And so I'm consistently paying attention to how am I speaking to myself? Am I speaking to myself in a kind, motivating, empathetic, compassionate way? 
or am I consistently self-deprecating and putting myself down? I used to think a lot of, like, you know, when I was younger, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not worthy. Um, those thoughts uh, and you know, lots of fear, fear of being embarrassed, fear of failure, fear of being ashamed. And I still have the thoughts every once in a while, especially when I'm setting new goals. Those come up, holy mackerel, they come up so freaking fast. Are, are you smart enough to achieve that? Are you good enough to achieve that? Even when I got into really diving deep into the brain science and even my new book, I, had, I was petrified to release my book. It took me two years to write it. Because now I'm entering another whole domain of neuroscience and neuropsychology with world-renowned experts that I've worked with for years. But now here I am putting myself out there with, hey, this is neuroscientifically correct. So I had, I had to make sure that it was. Um, and, but there was a lot of fear. Uh, but I understand what the emotion of fear is. It's a subconscious trigger that causes this feeling that I don't like. And it's a ghost signal for me, not a stop signal for me. That's interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, fear is an emotion. Emotions are all triggered at the subconscious level. They release neurochemicals that causes a feeling. We are consciously aware of feelings that are triggered at the subconscious level. The feeling is the end point of the human experience in the physical body. And so when you have something in your brain that, that uh, a neural network says, well, uh, what if this book comes out and you fail? What if it's not good enough? What is scientifically not correct? What if, what if, what if? My brain's gonna process that the same way as your brain and everybody else's brain because that's everybody's brain's the same. The mechanism of how the brain works, it's Einstein's brain, Hitler's brain, Genghis Khan's brain, Tom Bilyeu's brain, John Astor's brain, all the same functionality. So if you understand the mechanics of what's supposed to happen, then you say, okay, great. When I feel this, then what am I going to do? So I, I like to use a, uh, an analogy of a car. You're driving a car and you're talking to a friend of yours and a light pops up on the dash. You don't take a hammer and hit a light. <laughs> it's a signal, something's happening in the, in the, in the, in the engine, in the trunk, in the, in the tire, something's happening. Emotions and feelings aren't uh, positive or negative. They're empowering or disempowering to varying degrees if you don't understand them. And so if you think about fear, right? How does a firefighter go into a burning building when there's this enormous adrenaline and, and epinephrine you know, that could stop most people dead in their tracks? They learn, here's the feeling, it's normal. Do you have the knowledge and the skills and the preparation to deal with this in a safe way? Go. If you don't, now you retreat. So we have this phenomenal brain, right? It's, it's, it's genius abilities. We can't figure out how to re replicate it anywhere with billions of dollars, uh, but we are getting some of the user's manual now. So when you feel fear, what should you do? I teach the first two inner sizes that I teach every one of our students. Number one is called take six, calm the circuits. So if you have this unpleasant, anxious, fearful emotion, energy in motion, right? And it's unpleasant and the brakes have gone on. If you just take six deep breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth like you're breathing through a straw, you will deactivate the stress response center, which means blood is gonna go back to the left prefrontal cortex. The Einstein part of the brain can actually think through this problem 
Because what happens when the stress response center is activated, blood goes away from that into the fear response. So you have epinephrine, cortisol, adrenaline to be able to get you out of the situation. It's part of our in instinctual brain, part of the reptilian brain. The first part of the brain that was developed was that, then the mammalian brain, the limbic system, then the neocortex, the thinking brain. So when our brain has this signal of, oh my God, you might get hurt, you might lose this, you might get in trouble, you might be embarrassed, ashamed, ridiculed, judged, etc., that part of the brain is going to get activated. So if you take six deep breaths first, calm down, calm the circuits first, then do inner size number two is called AYA, A-I-A. The first A is for awareness. What am I thinking right now? What am I feeling right now? What am I sensing right now? What is my behavior right now? So you thoughts, feelings, sensations, awareness of behavior. What's my intention right now? That's the I. Well, my intention is to move forward. I want to do this. Great. What's one very small action step that you can take? Now, the reason you want to take one small action step is one small action step your brain can handle. If it's one small step towards it, the threat response goes away. But if you focus on the end game right away, you're going to get that rush and that instant trigger of the fear response, stress response. So the first thing you want to do is learn how to manage your mindset and what you focus on. Learn how to manage your emotions because they drive your behavior more than anything else. Because we move away from pain and we move towards pleasure, but we move away from pain a thousand times faster. And pain wires in the brain faster for survival mechanisms. So purely from a neuroscience perspective, just understanding self, once you understand, oh, okay, this feeling is normal, okay, what should I do? Take six calm the circuits, Aya, and now you can start being progressive and make progress towards what you want. Now, while you're in the, you know, in the, uh, what am I thinking, feeling, it's a chance to be aware. And the biggest gift we have as human beings is our awareness. Because awareness is what gives you choice. And choice is what gives you freedom. Most people are living their lives in a reactive state, automatic reactive state because of these set points that we talk, started talking about. So we're in this repetitive cycle over and over and over and over. We react to the same things, we behave the same way, we eat the same foods, we dress the same way just to maintain that homeostasis and comfort zones. And we've never been taught. Like when, when were we taught it as kids? Like here are your six core emotions. Here's the way you deactivate you know, your stress center or fear center. Here's how you activate your imagination center. Here's how you have more focus. Here's how you develop a new belief. Here's how you develop a new habit. Here's how you release one. We haven't been taught that. We've been told they're important things, but we haven't been given the tools and then we haven't practiced the tools enough to be able to make them part of our unconscious competence brain. So how do you do some of those things? I mean, that, that was a pretty extraordinary yeah. list. And <laughs> I'll say um, beliefs, releasing beliefs, habits, releasing habits, like yeah. that is really interesting. So what is a belief? I mean, think about what is a belief? And let's go to, again, I, I just like to go to the neuroscience field because it's just my passion now is a belief is nothing more than a group of cells that have been connected and then reinforced. And we have two types of beliefs. We have beliefs that what I- Really fast, I'm gonna stop you there because okay. that's so important okay. yeah. and so different than I would have expected. I think when people hear belief, it is believe in something that is true. 
which did not enter into your definition? No, we, we believe, whatever we believe is truth for us, but it's not the truth. That's really interesting. Right, but we have been conditioned. Uh, if we go back a little bit to um, what we talked about earlier about, you know, when you were a baby, when you were born, what belief did you have? Zero, goose egg, zero, not one. And so you learned what to believe and how to even formulate your beliefs, chances are from parents, teachers, brothers, sisters, television, maybe when you read some books, right? And we behave based on what we believe. So we might be behaving our lives away based on false or inaccurate or disempowering beliefs. So if a belief is a neural pattern in the brain, then we probably have some good ones, empowering ones, useful ones, and chances are we have some that are not useful, not empowering, and not worthy of the geniuses that we all are. So the question is, is it possible for me to develop new beliefs that I don't believe right now? Mm. The answer is yeah. Yeah, So what's that process look like? So the process is you can read new beliefs to life, And so if you listen to beliefs that are empowering over and over and over again and you emotionalize them and you visualize yourself actually acting out those beliefs and you learn how to pay attention to that little inner critic that says, that's bullshit, that's not true, that'll never come true, that's not true. If you learn and you remember that that little voice is there to consistently keep you in this homeostatic place and it's there to protect the beliefs that are there now. Mm. The latest research shows that to develop you know, a new pattern takes between 66 days and 365 days. How do you help people be consistent long enough to form that? Like when people talk about, oh, it takes 28 days to form a new habit, it's like, okay, I can get my head around that. But when you start talking about 100 days, 365 yeah. days, it gets pretty it's, daunting. For adults, yeah, it does. Um, So you have to use intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So you have to start everybody off, well, why is it important for you to be able to develop these new beliefs? Like, what would your life be like if you had them right now? What would your family life be like? You have to give them a benefit that's greater than the switch cost. That's interesting. Right? So the switch cost is something that our brain resists. The only human that likes change is a wet baby. (laughs) (laughs) every other human being is resistant to it because safety first and homeostasis and energy conservation so we are biologically wired not to want to change so we have to deliberately coax the brain into motivational reasons emotional reasons you have to have intrinsic reasons why must you do this and so you can use pain as a frame as well. So if you don't, then are you okay with your life being like this at this age in five years and 10 years and 20 years? And if you're okay with that, then you're, you're not a candidate for change. Mm. But if you're committed to letting go of the old so you can create the new and you create motivations every day, that's where the power is. Remember earlier, progress, not perfection. Mm. So anybody can do one minute or, or 10 seconds. So if you can start to formulate a habit, a daily habit, a weekly habit, it doesn't matter how long it is, 
If you can create that space in your brain that on this day, at this time, this is what I do, and you do that repeatedly, that becomes a habit. And it takes those 66 days or so for a simple habit that you have to consciously do to then the habit doing you. Mm. And that's why they say we are all creatures of habit. Because habits run themselves. Their subconscious programs just run themselves. Most people don't take the time to become aware. What are my empowering habits? What are my disempowering habits? And then the next question is, well, how do I release this one? And how do I strengthen this one or create a whole new one? And what we're looking to do is build empowering habits that then run, run their course. All right, one thing I'd be remiss not to ask you about before we go are the three boards. So vision boards, accomplished boards, and the one I don't know crap about, the board. crap boards. So crap board. So um, vision board for seeing what you want. Um, the accomplished board for reminding yourself that you've got a lot to, uh, that you've accomplished so you feel good. And the crap board. Do you board, actually put up images of things you've accomplished? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I have them in my closet, in my home, uh, encased uh, on the floor. Like on the floor, so that you don't look at them. So you no, so do I look at no, so I look at them just just because I I I, uh, I sit down and put on my shoes. I want to look at them okay, every day. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, on my um, I have uh, I have this uh, ritual as well. I do something called brush and prime. So on my uh, bathroom mirror, I have my goals that are on my mirror. So that as I'm brushing my teeth, I'm priming my brain mm. to see my goals in front of me every morning and every night. I love that. Right. So that's priming your brain, which is a whole other topic we can have. And then the accomplishment boards reminds me, uh, whenever I look at the stuff that I've accomplished, I go, that wasn't easy. I mean, there are a lot of ups, downs, highs, lows, failures, you know, times I thought I'd quit and I didn't. So it's to remind me to go through the times that I don't think I'm going to be able to achieve those things. And then the crap board stands for conflict, uh, resistance, um, accomplishments, and procrastination. So what conflicts are, are happening right now that I need to resolve? Um, what resistance is in my way? Is it, what am I resistance? What in front of me is it, it resisting right now? Uh, and then accomplishment as well is to remind you that you can get through stuff. Mm-hmm. And then procrastination is what's causing me to procrastinate. So if you create a, a crap board as well, you have that in front of you, and then you can create a game plan. Or what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about the conflicts? What would you put on a board for conflicts? Is it a picture of a um, person? Oh, it could be a person that you're having conflict with. It could be uh, something you're trying to, to figure out that's conflicting, uh, whether it's in your company, a department, uh, whether you're having conflicting thoughts of should you do it, shouldn't you, and there's uncertainty. Any conflicts that you are experiencing is going to create neural dissonance in your brain. It's just going to create chaos in your brain. And so if you take it out of your head and you put it on a sheet of paper, you can look at it and now you're one step removed from what's happening in your brain. And so um, the more you can be in coherence, it's the equivalent of being part of a band that's in harmony, that every player is just like, oh man, this just sounds so good. Well, the more you can be in coherence, the more you're going to be in flow and the more you're going to take action. The more chaos there is in the brain, neural chaos, whether it's because of emotions, you're lacking something, there's conflict, there's resistance, the more you can get it out into the, uh, in front of you and open and say, well, what's causing this? The easier it is for that Einstein brain to say, okay, well, maybe I could do this, maybe I can do that, but I can also call a friend or a mentor or a coach or I can research it.
If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. How does it get that big? How does the topic sort of expand so far? What is it that people are getting wrong? And what are some of the like universal principles that are going to lead people to... um, I'll say wealth, and it's probably worth defining. How would you define wealth? And then we'll go back to those two questions. In my mind, wealth is uh, an emotion. You know, it doesn't really matter how much you have, how much you make. Because I've interviewed over the course of my career, I've interviewed many millionaires and billionaires, and some of them are very unhappy and very upset with everything. I'm sure you've met some happy ones and very unhappy ones. So... Uh, and also among the people uh, who are struggling with life, there are also happy people and unhappy people. So I think wealth is an attitude. If you feel like you're so happy and so content with what you have, you are already wealthy. But if you have, uh, uh, you have if you have to struggle every day and you cannot fi- find happiness uh, either in your business or in personal life, 
I think you're not wealthy, even if you have billions in your bank account. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to have money. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like about your approach is there, there is a recognition. So part of the reason that I think that people continue to strive for money um, I lived the nightmare of money can't buy you happiness. I had heard a thousand people tell me that money wasn't going to buy me happiness, that you know pursuing money outright was going to end up being a problem, and I still had to do it. And when I ran into the wall of, oh, really, truly, money cannot buy you happiness, how is it that I ended up here when all the people told me that this was going to be the outcome? Why did I have to walk this path? Like, why couldn't I just accept their wisdom. And I realized that one of the things that people don't talk about is that money really is powerful. Money is, you call it energy. Um, I'll call it power. Like money gives you the ability to close your eyes, imagine something that you want to create and then open your eyes and actually be able to do it. And if you have the skill set, of course. Yeah. And so there, there's real utility in money. And when people talk about, in, and I've heard you say before, I don't want to get too spiritual. Like I want to keep this grounded. And I uh -huh. think that that's really important because if you tell people, hey, forget about money, because money doesn't matter, there's gonna be a turnoff. But if you yes. tell people, hey, forget about money because it's gonna reorient your mindset, it's gonna change your behaviors, it's gonna align your behaviors to something that's actually going to allow you to generate actual money, mm -hmm. then I think that it draws people in a little bit more. So with that context, I wanna go back to the two questions. So what are the mistakes that people make and what are some universal things people need to understand if they actually want to be wealthy in the way that you just defined? Mm -hmm. So I think most of us, the, uh, the biggest problem, I think, especially today, is that we are so afraid of money. And, and so as much as we want money, we are so scared of it. So uh, why do you say that? I think that that hit me is very counterintuitive. Why? Why do you think people are scared of money? It's because of a money trauma. I call it money wounds that we we've had since our childhood. We used to have some uh, unless your parents are perfect, and <laughs> unfortunately, it's not the case in in, in any any culture. So we've been scolded about money. You know, we spend too much, we wasted the money, or we denied a karate lesson or soccer lesson or a ballet lesson or piano lessons because it's expensive. Some of my friends were taught, "You are not worth it." <laughs> well, that's like that's a big blow. So. Uh, we've been denied so many times around money. So that's why as much as we want money, because we, we feel uh, money can buy happiness or money, money can buy at least freedom. But at the same time, money uh, have been abused, abused us for so many ways. So as much as we want to get close to it, but if we get too close to it, we get burns or like hurt. So uh, for a lot of people, money is a mystery person. So how do they begin to change that relationship? I'm assuming some of this is going to be just narrative around mm -hmm. how they talk to themselves about money. What do you advise people? You on have that? to start watching your, your language. Uh, my mother used to say that. <laughs> and then uh, around money, especially uh, a lot of people say like, you know, I was ripped off. So there are so many negative uh, language around money. And um, my mentor Wahe said, you have to use positive words around money. Otherwise, money will not like you. And I really, I thought it's very cute, you know. And then uh, in my book, I talk about what if, uh, if, if money were a person, who would it be like? Is that a person a gentle person or angry person? So just, um, you know, uh, you have to pay attention to how you relate to money. Uh, if you just um, 
feel like money is just a thing, like you don't care. But if you don't care, you know, uh, you end up uh, being in debt. So you have to be very careful and respectful for, for money. Uh, for some Japanese people, actually one of my students, made futon, you know, bed for a wallet. It's, it's so cute <laughs> to, to, to show respect. You know, while I rest, please, uh, money and credit cards, please rest here too. So it's like a, a little bed, like, like a cat, cat bed. <laughs> and then you're supposed to put uh, your wallet into the bed. So it's just a metaphor. But unless you show respect to money and uh, the money coming in, money going out both ways, you cannot really feel, you cannot feel peaceful around money, especially uh, uh, this hard time of uh, economy. You have to really um, pay close attention to your emotions. And most of us are so controlled by uh, anxiety and fear on money. That's why I do things which are not really true to us to in order to survive. So we feel like uh, if we have no money, we cannot survive. That means your death. So uh, the funny switch is turned on. Uh, it's I think it's our survival mechanism. Um, you know, 200 years ago or 300 years ago, everybody was a farmer. Nobody's, you know, probably don't use much money. But uh, now, Unless you have money, you you cannot buy food. So um, money and survival are so tied in your system. So as people begin to tell themselves a new narrative, they build the futon bed for mm -hmm. their wallet. Um, they think about who that person is, and they. I'm guessing a lot of people are going to think of that person as abusive or, um, you know, they wander off and they don't have a good relationship with that. So how do they begin to change their mindset around that? How do they begin to, to um, turn that narrative? Do you, do you tell them to imagine somebody who is kind or gentle? Um, what is that process? So uh, the since we, we've been abused, we feel like we've been abused by this person. We, we're a little scared of this person, right? So I think the first step is actually the step that uh, my mentor, Wahe Takeda, uh, taught me. That is, arigato your money. Thank your money. When money comes in, either by, uh, in a form of government check or a salary or commission or whatever um, the money you, you receive, you say, thank you, arigato. Thank you, money, for coming in. Because in these days, it's so, so rare to find you and then and pay you. Somebody pays you, right? It either could be government or your husband, wife, or your, your clients. Uh, there are so many other people who do the similar job that you do, but they chose you to pay you. So like there are millions of reasons to appreciate for the money. So when money comes in, just say, thank you, or arigato, or danke, or shesha, or whatever your language, or mercy, you know. And, and then when you spend money, also arigato. You know, because you're getting something for the money. And uh, Wahe said, arigato in, arigato out. So it's almost like a karate kid teaching, you know, walks in, walks out. So he said, uh, arigato in, arigato out, if you do it for uh, two months and then come back. So like, oh, I wanted to have some stock tips or like investment tips or I expected something different, but the, the thing I got is arigato in, arigato out. And I practiced for two months and I felt genuinely happier. So I recommend anybody, uh, you know, uh, just try it at least because it doesn't cost you anything. And once you start appreciating money coming in, money going out, 
you start appreciating about other things. So this arigato and arigato out opens a door to a new life, which is full of appreciation. And I think we definitely need that. Uh, Wahe said, appreciation melts fear and anxiety. So if you start and if you keep appreciating money coming and going out, you cannot worry about money at the same time because a human mind can focus one thing at a time. So Wahe has a, a very interesting, unique trick uh, of um, um, sort of like changing our um, wire in our brain. So once you start appreciating, it's so funny because one of my students said, oh, gee, Ken, I forgot to worry about money for a week <laughs> because you fo focus on uh, appreciation. Yeah, I think this is really powerful, is is a very important first step. And when I think about my own journey, um, I won't say that I had a negative view about money. And if you had asked me to describe what money was, I probably would have whoever I could think of that was like glamorous and exciting and powerful. Like that was my vision of money, which is why I was chasing it so hard. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, coming to understand, OK, I'm making more money than I've ever made, but I'm not happier than I've ever been. And the neurochemistry that I want to feel like this is not taking me there. And so I began to what what I began to do was change my behavior. So I changed my story about money that what I flipped over into was the only thing that matters is feeling alive. So I'm going to stop chasing money. I'm going to start thinking about value. And so I had a very negative connotation around money. And I just said, look, I'm going to set that aside for now. And I'm just going to pursue um, fulfillment. I'm going to do things to add value to people's lives. I'm going to work to improve myself. That was a huge part for me was always wanting to get better myself. Mm -hmm. And what I found was I needed both. I needed a change of mindset. I needed to stop thinking money was going to solve my problems. But I also needed to change my behaviors. And ultimately, I don't I no one is ever going to think their way to success. I think that you're you you have to think in a new way that is advantageous but you have to act in a new way that's advantageous so after you know when you do the wax on wax off like eventually we do find ourselves in a karate tournament and we really do have to fight yes so what does that look like especially now in this crazy economy that we're going through right now let's get let's go to that next phase mm -hmm. so People are there, arigato money in, arigato money out. They've got the futon for their wallet. Like <laughs> they're in a Zen place, like they're doing good. Now, like you retired at 29, not just because you were thinking, you retired at 29 because you ran businesses. You got very thoughtful about how to generate money and save it. Um, how should people be acting with their money? So we get now how they should be thinking, but how should they be acting with their money? Thank you, Tom. I think it's a beautiful question. And I, I, I think that's exactly what we need to learn. Um, because uh, once you start appreciating, your life shifts too. Uh, for example, one of the uh, readers on my book, uh, she was a, a single mom uh, with a low-paying job. She was working as a secretary. And then she came to me and she used to complain about uh, her low-paying job. But after reading uh, my book, she uh, changed her attitude and she started appreciating about life and boss and and. And she realized that she didn't have a college degree, but she got she was hired as a secretary. So that's a big reason to appreciate her boss. Uh, before she was always complaining about him, and I think the feeling really probably came across to uh, his uh, her boss, and she got a big raise uh, in a few weeks. So once you start appreciating, I I've heard so many stories. I can even write a few books on this. 
uh, once you start appreciating your boss, your clients, uh, they appreciate you back. So uh, in my 20s, the reason why I, I, I was successful was I was a little uh, unique in, in so many diff- different things. For example, when I was doing accounting consulting, I divided my group, uh, clients to two groups. One, I do regular job. The other, I always uh, bring something whenever I, I got to meet them, just a herb tea, Japanese tea, like a book, or just not super expensive. So in six months, I got so many referrals from the, uh, the, the gift-giving groups. You know, I didn't ask for any clients, right? But they gave me uh, so many referrals. And the second, you know, uh, group, uh, not so much. So uh, I rec- uh, recommend everybody to start giving more, uh, something a little extra, not like 30% more, but something to, to show your appreciation. And uh, it, it doesn't really matter if you're florist or cleaners or uh, uh, business lawyers or a dentist. If you start giving something, you get more. So uh, this is the law, I think. Uh, if you give more, um, you receive more. And then uh, there is one more extra reason to appreciate about. So you, you, your life would shift. So your whole energy would be so different and fo- so content. And I think people want to do business with happier people. You know, people don't want to go with people who are very depressed. So the people with the radiance of appreciation often attracts uh, more people and more opportunities. So this is not a new age or a spiritual thing. It's a practice to, to, um, to appreciate more. So uh, what you appreciate, appreciates. And I think it's, it's so simple. So start appreciating about money is a first step. And then start, second step is start appreciating what you have. And if you start sharing what you have, I call it gift. Uh, all of us have gifts. I've written probably like uh, half of my books, 20 books on how to discover your gifts and monetize them. Because uh, we are born, each of us is born with a special gift and uh, something to be shared with this uh, planet. And if you can find it and if you can uh, improve it and you can, you can polish it and just um, share with a, a society, I think um, that translates into money. So I wrote a national bestseller, uh, do what you love and make sure money follows you. So it's very important. You have to have both. So talk to me about that. So the hearing you, I've heard you say that before, that you've written that many books yes. on um, finding your gifts. So one, I'd like to know what that process is. I'm not a big believer, and I get this is, um, it'll be interesting to see your take on this. I'm not a big believer that we're born with something. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that we can polish, like you're saying, and, and really turn that into something. Um, how do people find it? Mm-hmm. And then how do they polish it? You know, I taught uh, probably personally over hundreds of thousands of people, you know, through seminars and my coaching. Uh, I do a big events, a few thousand people at a time. And uh, I do a lot of Q&As. So I have this track record of how people found their gifts. And uh, some people find find them when they're very young, you know, when, when you're five or six or seven, you uh, your neighbor finds out that you're very good at chess and then he ends up being, being champion. I've interviewed a uh, uh, Japanese champion once and uh, some geniuses are found that way. But most of us are not that way, right? We're not Olympic athletes or we're not superstars. So um, most of us are not born with only one gift. We are born with several mediocre gifts, 
like uh, like I was uh, I think I, I had I had a gift of speaking I had a gift of uh, teaching I had the gift of making jokes I make I make old jokes all the time and money could be very boring so and money uh, is there are so many funny stories especially couples but and anyway so you know so there are many gifts small gifts but you have to multiply them and then you become one and only. So, so I know where you're going with that. Before we get to how you chain them together, how do you find them? Because that, what you just said really resonates with me. You've got minor gifts, mm-hmm. mediocre gifts, I yes. think was your exact phrase. I love that. Okay, so you've got these mediocre things inside of you. <laughs> how, do you how do you find them? Like, I don't, I don't know that people, and I know what your, the three things that you chain together are, mm-hmm. and that'll be really interesting to hear you talk about that, especially the third one, which you haven't mentioned yet. Um, how do people identify that? And maybe you walking us through how you found your three mm-hmm. will be super useful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people find it by coincidence. You know, some people find out that your your friend would say, hey, Ken, you're good at speaking. Like, uh, uh, what? You know, because gifts are a funny thing. It, it comes so naturally out of you. So you don't even notice it. So even if you're good at singing, you're good at uh, speaking, you're good at connecting people, that's another gift. Yeah, I think you have the special gift of connecting people too. Um, so if you have, even if you have so many gifts, you don't realize them unless you, you recognize them. And, uh, oftentimes, uh, I do, um, guide, uh, people to find their gifts and in the process, they realize like, oh, gee, all these years I've, kn- I've known that I had the gift, but I never recognize it as a gift because oh, how do you guide people through that? Do you have them ask themselves questions yes, or have, survey like, their friends some questions that people can go through? Literally a thousand? Yes. So, for example, one of the questions is like, uh, when uh, when you were small, uh, what what were the nicknames? And then the nicknames have strong something. Uh, by the way, uh, my nickname was a teacher because I was like <laughs> teaching kids, <laughs> other kids. So like uh, nicknames have certain uh, characteristics already. Or like uh, when you were kids, uh, what were you scolded uh, for? Uh, when I was small, uh, my mother used to say, you know, you talk too much. Don't talk. <laughs> that means I had the gift of talking because I want to express myself. So when you are scolded about something, that is a gift. But you thought it's a, a negative. It's it's your uh, actually it's your flaws instead of thinking it's a gift. So there are thousands of questions. And then when you just sh- uh, show light on that, you realize, wow, I just never thought that I had so many gifts. And then once you kind of like recognize one by one by one, and then start sharing um, without thinking much, you know, you don't have to be at this point, you don't have to be strategic about uh, what what's going to happen, because it's, well, you know, f- fun things will come out, you never know. I've seen so many fun uh, uh, miracles happening to people's lives. So you discover certain gifts, and then uh, once you realize the gifts will come out on its own, it's a it's so interesting organic mechanism that because you're so inspired by uh, sharing your gifts, because more you share, your people will love it, love it. And, uh, you know, your listeners will love your shows. They're waiting for your shows. They'll be upset if you just get a sick leave or something. Right. So that like, people give you energy. So once the cycle starts and you appreciate them for supporting you, it grows and grows and grows exponentially. And then when that happens, you don't want to stop. And then at some level, it will translate into money. 
So that's how- let's talk about that. So there, there's um, a gap there that I think a lot of people fall into and don't know how to get out of. So yes. let's say that they they do the exercise. They you know think about what they were into when they were young. They mm-hmm. think about what they got scolded for, nicknames, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Just things that they find interesting, and they go, okay, cool. These are the things that I think that I'm. It's a mediocre talent, but I'm willing to polish it and make it bigger. Mm-hmm. How do they monetize that? Like how do they actually turn that into money? Yeah. So that is a miracle and also a fun part of life. Because we never know. Uh, one of my students was an insurance salesperson, and uh, he didn't sell uh, a lot because he didn't want to push people. I'm sure a lot of people are, can relate to that. And one day he was he was told to do cold calls. He so he had to go to the uh, one one big house where there was a German Shepherd, and then uh, he knew that he loves dogs. And you know some people dog lovers dogs know you know who they are. So when he was uh, in the house and, and he didn't, and, and it says, beware of dog, but he, he didn't really care. So the dog, the dog didn't really um, uh, shout at him and bark at him. And uh, the owner, uh, grandmother, was so impressed because everybody was harassed by this dog, you know, mailman and a delivery man. And so she thought, it's, you know, it's interesting. So why don't you come up to my house and have, have a cup of tea? And then he was invited in, and and then she fell in love with this guy because you know uh, whoever uh, her dog loves uh, this person means he's a good man. <laughs> and then uh, she was a head uh, figure in this uh, entire neighborhood, so he could sell so many insurance policies. And later on, he found this dog club, uh, and then uh so like a uh, they do only barbecues you know they do nothing but with dogs you know by the riverside and they go on a trip and so all he does is not selling insurance but since he he has he's surrounded by so many people you know uh, there is a need for insurance he gets it there's another insurance uh, per- salesperson who she loved cooking so she kind of like did the cooking classes right for free and uh and the cooking classes grew, and uh, she ended up being uh, uh, the cooking class teacher, but uh, she sold so many insurance policies on the way, and uh, she found more passion in cooking, so he, she quit the insurance uh, business. But in the process of expressing and finding who you are, happy money f- uh, follows you. So uh, forget about money, is that teaching. But you know, at, at the same time, don't forget it completely. You have to make both ends meet. So uh, that's, you know, I have this accounting uh, consulting background. So I'm a very practical person. So you have to make sure all the bills are paid in appreciation and at the same time grow um, your your energy. The um, uh, most biggest problem that we have is that we are depressed with our lives. So we don't have hopes. We're not excited about li- our lives. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, 
Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. How much of the brain is allocated to sight and then what, how have you begun to sort of re-engage with the world now that you don't have vision? Sure, so sight's obviously very important uh, evolutionarily and biologically, but it's not everything and it's certainly not infallible. And uh, in some respects, I think, you know, as I was saying, I think there's a, an interesting metaphor uh, to be made or interesting lessons to draw from the way in which uh, we experience uh, sight is this all-consuming, uh, you know, passive reality, um, you know, versus what's what's sort of really going on uh, in the world and what's really going on in our minds. And and sight's a crazy thing. I apologize if I'm rambling, but uh, so some electromagnetic light hits the back of our eyes, you know, our retinas, photoreceptor cells in the back of the eye respond to that light, send a signal to the brain. We call the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that our eyes respond to the visible spectrum, right? Well, that spectrum of light of electromagnetic radiation is one ten trillionth of the total spectrum of, of uh, electromagnetic radiation that's out there. So, you know, we got this back of the eye that responds to one ten trillionth of electromagnetic, the electromagnetic radiation in our world. Uh, from that, you know, we create this abstracted, unique, personal, virtual world that involves, like I said, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with data from the eyes. The sight itself is really only about 10% data from the eyes. And yet, we walk around, or sighted folks walk around thinking that they, you know, quote-unquote, know what the world looks like. The idea is crazy. It's nonsense. Yeah, that to me is, is one of the most powerful things about your book. It, and in fact, the reason that you've said you wrote the book wasn't for people with disabilities or blindness specifically, certainly, but that you wanted your kids to read it one day so that they would have that frame of reference so that they would understand that basically you're living in this virtual representation. Like you said, it gave me the chills that only 10% of vision is created from the data that's coming from your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so the rest is being constructed. It's being constructed by what, right? So once you realize that your brain is constructing the world around you and it doesn't necessarily always serve you, then it empowers you to start making choices about not only what to believe, but perspective, how to see things. And so taking that perspective shift, you've talked a lot about fear very powerfully. Mm -hmm. um, what is it, what is fear? Why is it such a potent force in our life? And with new perspective, what can we do to it? Sure. So, you know, real world experience. Have you ever had, uh, you know, the experience where you spot someone across the room, you walk over, tap them on the shoulder, and it's a complete stranger, yes. it turns out, right? So, you know, we say, uh, very quickly, we say, oh, we thought it was our friend, or we thought it was our colleague. 
And that's just not true. We knew it. Right? In, your, in your world, in your reality, your friend was there. Right. Right? And then it turned out they weren't. So uh, fear, we, if we're not careful, we can experience uh, much the same way. Fear is this, is this natural response. It serves an evolutionary purpose, to be sure. It's very helpful in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's also powerfully destructive. So fear is this mechanism that sort of fills in the unknown, right? When we, when we confront uh, times of change, times of crisis, you know, when, when we're uncertain, you know, our fears kick in and we fill in uh, really the worst case scenario, right? We awfulize. Psychologists call it awfulizing, which I think is a great term. But, you know, we fill in the, you know, the worst case scenario and we have all these dark imaginings. And these are things that we tell ourselves. They're machinations of our own mind. But uh, much like that friend at that party, yeah, these aren't things that we think. We experience them as things that we know, right, if we're not careful. Uh, when I was first diagnosed with my blinding disease, I knew that blindness was going to ruin my life, right? It meant I was going to live a wholly unremarkable life, small and sad. Uh, I would never, you know, it would be the end of achievement for me. I thought I'd never have a family uh, because, uh, you know, I wasn't even going to love or respect myself. How could I expect someone else to love or respect me? And on and on and on. And these were lies, born of my fears, uh, born of ignorance. Uh, but uh, for some time, I knew them to be true. And uh, I think uh, had I not had the blessing of this, uh, this sort of shattering of the illusion of sight itself that I speak of, this sort of peek behind the curtains into sort of, uh, you know, the way the mind works, the wizard behind the curtains, right? If I hadn't learned to see through those fears, eyes wide open, I, I would have, I mean, that's the world I would have lived. That would have been my life. And the only difference is perspective. It's in here. It's, it's nothing out there in the world. So, uh, you know, like I said, this, 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 this journey of mine, losing my sight and, and gaining this vision, has been immeasurably rewarding for me and, and fulfilling, and it's been one of the best things that happened. That makes so much sense to me when I think about um, the man behind the curtain or the, you know, the Wizard of Oz, once you realize that they're there. That's been really potent in my life as well. So when um, I first started on my entrepreneurial journey, uh, I was a total mess. And I had no idea how to make the things happen that I wanted to make happen. And I found that my own ego was getting in my way. Mm -hmm. And that once I realized that my ego was based on something and I could change what that was, that I could flip that around, then all of a sudden I could value myself based on uh, being a learner, being willing to admit that I was wrong instead of trying to be smart, right, mm -hmm. or whatever. And that was really transformative. And being able to visualize the structures of the brain being able to understand from an evolutionary perspective why I was set up to be fearful or whatever was incredibly powerful. Do you find that being able to, um, becoming aware of the visual tricks, because you've said that things would morph right before your eyes mm -hmm. as you were um, losing your sight. I think mm -hmm. one time you said you went to wash your hands and realized you were actually touching a urinal, mm -hmm. and, but it looked like a sink mm -hmm. until you finally realized mm -hmm. it was a urinal. Um, just being able to visualize the, the physical machinations of the brain help you with things other than sight? Oh, sure, absolutely. And, you know, as you said, I mean, the, the, the value in this, this, this eyes wide open vision that, you know, that I speak of is, is you know, it's, it's not about sight, it's not about blindness. It's, it's about the lessons we can take, uh, you know, in, in really taking control over the reality we want for ourselves. Literally choosing uh, who you want to be and how you want to live your life. Uh, in, in any moment, right? So, uh, yes, we do this with sight, but we do it with the uh, self-limiting assumptions we make about ourselves. You know, we do it with the way we misperceive uh, success and weakness and failure and strength uh, in life, which, with the way that we, uh, I think, uh, really misperceive luck, uh, the force of luck in life, uh, our insecurities, our vanities, our, our seeming... Uh, uh, struggle to listen to each other, let alone to our own hearts, and, and on and on and on. So this really is, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's 
it's my daily philosophy, right? It's, it's, it takes effort. There was no uh, aha moment right up on some hill where it all, you know, flipped, you know, switch flipped and it all became perfect mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I struggle with it every day. Some days I'm not so good at it, but it, it is my aspiration and it's certainly worthwhile, I think. On the days where you're not so good at it, what actually is happening? You know, there are times still when I, you know, have, have fears, when I fear failure, right? When I wrestle with that critic in my mind telling me all sorts of awful things. When I, you know, am uncareful and find that I'm um, projecting onto others insecurities or vanities that are really all my own. And step one is being conscious of it and being aware of it. Uh, but that, that doesn't always mean it's super easy to overcome it. But I, I try, again, you know, to, to I hold myself uh, accountable above all else for... Uh, my role in, in, in shaping, you know, the reality that I experience in every moment. Uh, so I do try to, you know, talk to my, I do talk to myself often and say, listen, you're feeling lousy, you're worried about this, you're scared about that, you're upset about this, and, you know, it's okay, you're human, but let's, let's pull it apart. And, you know, let's go through the strategies that I've uh, developed over the years to, to, you know, overcome those things. So I want to get into some of those strategies mm-hmm. that in the book, one of the most incredible parts was when you buy the cement company <laughs> in Orlando, which by the way, when you look back on it and becomes insanely successful, right. like there's a safety net to that. We've all already landed. We know it works out, right? but you didn't know that it was going to work out. You've got your business partners like telling you, Hey, it took me 20 years to, you know, <laughs> save up and protect my family financially. You ruined it in three months. Your mom is having to offer you money for you to keep <laughs> The company going. You've already had to tell your wife that we're going to have to declare a personal bankruptcy. Move and, in with her parents. Right. Just to really make it fun. Yeah. And in the book, you actually walk through like step by step what your brain was telling you, the critic. So yeah. you, you differentiate between the critic and the strong man, which mm-hmm. I want to hear more about. Sure. And then you really walk through like super raw and vulnerable those steps. What, what was that like for you going through that and how, what were the mechanisms or the, just the dialogue in your brain that you used to silence the critic? Sure. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I wanted so badly to surrender gracefully. Right? The company we bought was toxic. It was hemorrhaging money and it looked like, you know, we had lost everything. And then I had this, this lifeline from, uh, from my mom, this offer of uh, essentially her life savings to try to save my business. And whew, that was, uh, it, it was almost uh, an unwanted offer, right? Uh, I wanted so desperately, like I said, to just kind of give up. But, um, Again, you're sort of putting my money where my mouth is on this sort of philosophy and, and taking a step back to, to you know, really hold myself accountable for uh, you know, the choices I was going to make and what I wanted in life. You know, on the inside of the business, we were even more excited about the vision. We were super excited about our team. Uh, we felt we could bring you know, technology and professionalism to a very unsophisticated industry. And so logically, rationally, uh, you know, with, with some money, with some time, you know, we could turn the ship around. And that was certainly a better approach than, than giving up, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when, when you're honest with yourself and, and you know the right uh, step you got to make and, uh, you know, it, you got to do it and you got to get yourself there. What I love is looking at your life, it would be really easy to dismiss you as just being unnaturally smart <laughs> and just saying like, look, this guy's a fucking genius. Like it is what it is. I could never do what he does. And what I found so empowering about your book and what I think is so cool about what you're doing in this phase of your life is in the book, you, you walk people through where you're saying you're putting this map together of these incredible entrepreneurs that have come before you that have been bold, but you're not that good. Like you're never going to live up to that. Mm-hmm. 
And I was just like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, the guy who it would be tempting for me to just dismiss as being unnaturally smart is saying it's easy for him to like dismiss other people as being unnaturally smart. And it, it is this so natural thing for everybody to have that voice in their head that says that they can't do it. And then the, the punchline is that it was basic execution mm -hmm. that ended up pulling you out of that. Sure. So talk to me, what is the strongman? What is that whole concept? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, this critic in our minds, you know, it's that, that nasty voice that uh, is quick to pass judgment, to tell us what we can't do, uh, you know, to keep us off the field, to tell us what others are thinking and saying about us, right? And uh, the way this sort of critic can be so effective, so powerful in, in, in kind of dominating our lives, uh, in, in my experience, is by, you know, through uh, an insistence on perfection, right, which is impossible, the critic insists upon perfection, which essentially guarantees your failure. Mm. Uh, through comparison, relative merit, right? That critic will compare you to anybody, right? Real or imagined from any era, especially when you compare unfavorably. <laughs> you know, and the critic will swap out, you know, different definitions of success or value or purpose or you know, for your own, and you know, you won't even notice it. So, uh, you know, the critic, and of course this comes from Teddy Roosevelt's, you know, brilliant remarks about the critic and the strongman. The critic for me really is sort of that embodiment of, uh, you know, again, our fear of failure, uh, you know, our, uh, our, our own worst enemy in our minds. Uh, Roosevelt's strongman, on the other hand, you know, is, is someone who has no use for perfection, right? Only progress, right? Someone who values effort and growth, right? whose focus is, the mom is momentum, right? The next step. Not this overarching enterprise, this overwhelming endeavor, but what is my next step? Uh, and, you know, for the strongman, uh, success lies in, in, in striving, in actually striving, right, towards a noble pursuit, which at the end of the day is the only thing we can control, right, uh, whether or not uh, we are striving to our best toward a noble pursuit. And the outcome is less important. It's funny you mentioned that, uh, you know, at the time that I was going through it, I, I obviously did not know that we were going to turn around ODC construction and it would be a great success. You know, you make a big decision and you know, later it either works out phenomenally well or is a catastrophic failure. Well, it's so tempting in the face of the catastrophic failure to go back and beat yourself up and say, oh, this was the worst decision and I'm an idiot and this was terrible. And likewise, in the face of, uh, of great success, it's very easy for people to tell themselves, well, man, I must have been a genius, <laughs> right? I'm the smartest guy there is. And just as a law of, uh, of physics, right, as a, as, a, as a proposition of logic, that can't be true. It, it cannot be that subsequent events you know, determine the, the, the quality of actions you make, decisions you make, conversations you have, you know, behaviors you exhibit. You have to assess those things from the perspective of, uh, you know, the time in which they take place. So how does that, how does that pan out in my experience? Was I a, you know, a, you know visionary genius to, to buy this uh, struggling construction company, you know, when we did? No. It was, I mean, it was, a, it was a disaster. We thought we were buying, a, you know, a humble company, but a going concern, and we, we bought so, you know, a company that was sinking like a stone. Uh, did it work out well? Yeah, of course. And it worked out phenomenally well. I'm, I'm blessed beyond contemplation. You know, again, I credit the team with that and, and the timing and the vision and luck and all those things. But I'm not going to go back and say it was, uh, you know, a great decision. Um, and likewise, this is the harder part. <laughs> likewise, um, you know, I think it's really important that we don't, uh, uh, you know, we don't read our own press, right? We don't get too excited about uh, great outcomes where maybe the, the decisions that led to them or the journey along the way was, uh, you know, was less than uh, worthy. Now that makes a lot of sense. There's um, a quote in your book about the strongman that 
that echoes what you just said, which I thought was so powerful. I want to read it um, exactly as it is. The strong man savors the first step. He is impatient for it, craves it. As long as he strives valiantly with his first step, he has won. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? We are, uh, you know, so often our own worst enemies, right? We, we keep ourselves, uh, you know, off the stage, you know, for fear of bad reviews. And don't even realize that, you know, in the process we're, you know, forgetting how to dance and losing the join in, right? Uh, and it's just such a shame. You know, for me, that first step of the strongman, to me, kind of conveys, encompasses, you know, uh, sort of victory over that critic, right? That's where you've said, look, maybe this is crazy, maybe it's not, maybe, you know, maybe everybody thinks I'm, you know, way off base here, whatever. All the what ifs, all the, you know, why, not, why I should, why I should, whatever. I've put all that aside. And I have committed to, you know, enter the arena. And that is the defining moment, I think, for the strong man. And uh, I, I think when we're honest with ourselves and when we start to recognize significance in, in, in moments like that in our lives, when we start to say, well, if I did this, it would be, it, it's a big move, right? And it doesn't have to be a huge move financially or economically or even, you know, it doesn't have to make sense to anyone else why it's a big move. It's a big move for you. It's important to pay attention to those feelings because uh, often that's, that's the strong man inside trying to tell you, we can do this. You know, we, let's get over this, uh, you know, our fears, let's get over our, uh, you know, our self-doubt and let's, let's do this. You've talked earlier about how people misperceive things. They misperceive success and mm -hmm. that the critic will even change the definition of success. Mm -hmm. What is an anchor point, a vision of success? Is there something that's universal that you think applies to everybody or is there a process to defining success in a way that will resonate? I don't think so. Personally, I think, uh, you know, who am I to even begin to contemplate what someone else should or should not uh, aspire to do with their time or their lives or whatever, right? We're, we're all uh, masters of our own universes, right? Alone in our own worlds and, and I, you know, I don't purport to tell anyone how they should behave or what they should aspire to or what success should be. However, <laughs> however, uh, I certainly think everybody, you know, should, should figure it out. Right? You, you should figure it out for yourself because time's going to go by either way. And, you know, you can live a life of happenstance, of reaction, uh, you know, or you can take some time to figure out how you want to spend your time, who you want to be, who you want to be at work, you know, who you want to be as a parent, who you want to be as a spouse, and on and on and on. And, and you know, you can, you can try to be that person and you can try to live that life. So that's what I have in mind when I say, you know, you, you really... Uh, should define your success, your purpose, and, and, and labor towards it. Well, let's get really specific then. So you've had such a diverse life. Mm -hmm. One, I'll just walk through a few. Uh, <laughs> why not you have success in Hollywood, but you mm -hmm. immediately stop. Uh, you then have success at, at law that is just on another planet, <laughs> and you stop. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the tech firm ended up doing very well, but as far as I know, you moved out of that fairly rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these things, like you've been able to break free of the trap that most people get into, mm -hmm. which is there's momentum in their life, they're succeeding, everyone says they're crazy when they go to leave, <laughs> but you've done that over and over and mm -hmm. over. So you obviously are way in touch with your balance sheet. <laughs> so like, what, walk us through one or two of those and really say, like, leaving law, I'm gonna guess, was the hardest one. Like, you had so that much was a tough invested. One. Like, how, what did you walk through? What were the, I've got this going, but not this? So that was a tough one. Uh, Un, un, uh, you know, unless and until I actually thought about it, 
rationally and logically, right? And then it, and then it was pretty obvious. Which, those are often the hardest decisions to make, right? But so, you know, here I was, I had been blessed to have phenomenal experiences in law in the public sector, right? Working for the Justice Department, uh, clerking for a couple uh, U.S. Supreme Court justices. Love that. And then I sort of took the easy path, the direct path, you know, accepted a, a phenomenal, cushy job at a very fancy elite law firm, international law firm. And parents were very, very proud. I had you know, gorgeous business cards and a skyscraper office and all that. But, uh, you know, I was expected to, you know, to work, to bill, you know, 60, 70, 80, you know, crazy hours every week. And I was involved in kind of litigation as warfare with uh, a constant view towards uh, the billings of the law firm. And, and it just wasn't the way I wanted to practice law. A lot of people weren't people I wanted to practice law with. I <laughs> uh, certainly didn't want to spend, you know, 100 hours a week doing it. Just none of that made any sense. So uh, <laughs> everybody thought I was completely nuts, and maybe they're right. But uh, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I said, look, you know, nothing is permanent in life. There's nothing that says if I ever want to practice law again, I can't go back to it or in some other capacity or in you know, uh, some other city or whatever. But you know, for now, what's important to me and what am I looking to accomplish uh, in my life? You know, going back to that balance sheet. Um, and at that point in my life, really, by far, above all else, you know, it, was, it was really quality of life and time with my family. Got to talking to my roommate, Zach, as you mentioned, and, and you know, we thought, hey, Let's buy a small business together, and he would help me, you know, he'd pay for most of it, but he would keep his fancy day job, and I'd leave behind my fancy day job and run it, and, you know, what could possibly go wrong? So that was the, uh, the thesis, I guess you would say, that brought us to Orlando, and that, you know, sort of took me to uh, uh, take the helm as the first chief executive officer of our uh, residential construction subcontractor. And, of course, uh, you know, they say man plans, God laughs. Uh, it didn't, it didn't, <laughs> didn't turn out quite that way. But uh, that was a good decision at the time uh, to, to leave law. That was the right decision for me and my family. So then the construction company blows up. You make a yes. lot of right decisions. I'm sure you'd uh, attribute it a lot, obviously, to the team, but to luck as well. Yes. But now things are going well. And instead of just continuing to scale it and grow it, yes. you decide that you want to back off. Again, a pretty atypical choice. Well, so look, you know, again, my goal was quality of life for my family. You've said that happiness is a choice. Sure. In what way? How do we choose to be happy? Everything's a choice. Every moment of your life is a choice. Uh, how do you want to spend that moment? Who do you want to be? It is not the circumstances we confront that dictate the lives we experience. It just cannot be. There are counterexamples all over the place. I'm just a blind guy. Like, that's no big deal. But you, know, you think about you know, prisoners of war who endure the most unspeakable of, uh, you know, of human atrocities, Nazi concentration camp uh, survivors, and on and on and on. And you, you find examples of remarkable people who, despite these circumstances, make a choice to find purpose in life, to find joy, to be a source of strength for others in their lives. And you know, these, these shining folks, you know, again, to my mind, prove categorically it's not the circumstances we confront that dictate how we, you know, the lives we experience. So, Choose to be happy, literally, in every moment. And, and again, I'm not saying it's easy, again, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's always easy for me, but it's certainly a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, you know, you spill on yourself, or you, you knock something over, or, you know, you're late for a meeting, or, you know, it, it can derail you. It can be, you know, something, quote, unquote, awful. Where, you know, meanwhile, most of the world is worried about, uh, you know, health care and food and clothing. But, um, you know, or you can choose to laugh about it. You can choose to have fun with it. You can choose to let it go. And um, again, every, I think every moment is, is you know, uh, an amalgam of, of precisely those choices. And I, I think it behooves us to, to spend some time thinking about our answers. 
And do you have a process or a mantra or is it as simple as choosing to laugh when you want to do anything else to actually manifest that happiness? It's not simple. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's much in life that's simple. Everything's nuanced. It really it sort of it depends on, on the context. So you're in times of crisis is a little different than fear of failure and other, other sorts of things. So uh, there's some nuances there. And then you know, some other strategies I think we can bring to bear to, to look at things like luck in our lives. And the fundamental idea, like I said, is you know, you're the master of your reality. And you know, once you buy that, once you're willing to take responsibility for the fact that you, know, you are literally creating uh, the life you are experiencing, the reality, you know, your reality is your creation, Again, the rest is details.